thank you, Hillary, for that very kind introduction, and also to Emily and David for having me along here and giving me a chance to share my ideas with a different audience from uh, the kind of audience I usually uh, share these ideas with. Um, I've, today, I'm going to be talking about interrogation on the war on terror and about the role of um, health professionals in our interrogation strategy and about the implications of some of those uh, strategies and the involvement of health professionals in them. Just let me give you a little bit of other background about myself. So, as Hillary said, my background is, is in law, and in particular human rights law. And um, My first encounter with torture was approximately eight years ago when I got a telephone call from somebody who said, would you like to represent Human Rights Watch in the Pinochet case before the House of Lords? And I said... Yes, I would. Thank you very much. Um, it was the most uh, enjoyable uh, pro bono case I'd ever been involved in. and was indeed a very, very steep learning curve for me. Um, but the reason why I mention it is if you had asked me then, if eight years later, or in fact I, I was involved much sooner than that, if four or five years later I would be involved in talking about the role of Americans um, in aggressive interrogation and, in some cases, torture, I would not have believed you. So let me uh, get out of my life and step back even further and just tell you a little bit of the history of the recent history of interrogation. So I, I want to exclude the, the much more torturous history. Um, and those of you who've read about torture and interrogation uh, uh, as a way of extracting information from people hundreds of years ago, well, you know, there's a very different story. But I want to start with a much more recent story, and that is in World War II, a man whose name is pretty much uh, unknown to people outside interrogation circles is Hans Scharf. Now, Hans Scharf was a Luftwaffe interrogator who had a reputation for being able to extract the most incredible amounts of information from... Uh, British airmen who were captured um, after they uh, landed and who were taken into his custody for questioning. And he did so not by abusing the British airmen or torturing them, but by building rapport with them. And afterwards, if you asked you know, some of these airmen, you know, 20, 30 years later, they said, I just couldn't believe how much he was able to get out of me just through conversation. I only realize now. Now, what's interesting is this happened on both sides in World War II. Um, some of you may have read in the Washington Post earlier this month about a unit called P.O. Box 1142. P.O. Box 1142 was a special unit um, just outside Fairfax County in Virginia that was charged with the task of interrogating Luftwaffe pilots and other German uh, 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 other uh, members of German forces had been captured. And the members, the American members of this sort of elite interrogation team have suddenly felt the need to speak out all these years later because they said, you know, we got far more out of our, uh, our charges. In fact, I'll, I'll read you the quotation that was in the, um, the post the other day. We got more information out of a German general with a game of chess or ping pong than they do today with their torture. Um, and that's uh, an MIT physicist whose charges, amongst others, were Rudolf Hess, Hitler's deputy, whom he uh, also interrogated. So I think that's really important to recognize that that's the traditional approach to interrogation in the 20th century. 
Um, what's interesting is that that approach found its way into um, a number of documents uh, in the U.S., in particular the Army Field Manual. The, the Army Field Manual in 1992, the one which governed at the time the conflict um, in Afghanistan and Iraq broke out, that Army Field Manual cites, and I quote, Coercion, including intimidation, threats, and insults, is not necessary to gain the cooperation of sources for interrogation. It's a poor technique that yields unreliable results, may damage subsequent collection efforts, and can induce the source to say what he thinks the interrogator wants to hear. That was standard army interrogation um, procedure. And indeed, if you went on the 16-week um, interrogation training course at Fort Huachuca, and you even talked about using aggressive techniques, you were kicked out. In addition, not just the Army Interrogation Manual, but also the FBI you know, regularly interrogates people for the purposes of criminal investigations and others. Um, and it uses what they call rapport-building techniques, right? which are just what they sound. You build a rapport. Now, um, there are many ways of describing... Uh, uh, the idea of rapport building can have many descriptions and definitions and just to make clear it's not always you know buddy buddy chummy chummy I mean so the way I describe it is imagine having a conversation with a close, a close relative about whom you have with whom you have some political disagreements at a Thanksgiving dinner okay so the conversation can get heated at points but there's a, there's a there are certain lines that won't be crossed I mean you won't smack your relative across the head with a turkey Right? I mean, I presume you don't. You hope not. Exactly. So anyway, so those were the traditional approaches. Let me now tell you about where the more aggressive strategies that you've heard about came from. So um, fast forward a little bit further, beyond the Second World War. Now we're in the Korean War. 36 U.S. airmen confessed to a plot to bomb civilian targets in Korea. There was no American plot to bomb civilian targets in Korea. Why did they confess? Because they were made to endure, amongst other things, uncomfortable stress positions. Didn't rise to the level of torture. They were just made to endure uncomfortable stress positions, being made to stand or sit in very uncomfortable positions for very long periods of time. One or two other techniques were used too, but it wasn't the pulling of teeth you know, or it wasn't marathon man, it wasn't drilling holes in people's teeth, it was just making people uncomfortable. And sure enough, 36 men all signed false confessions. So what happened when we, uh, when the American government was somewhat embarrassed by that, we started to get psychologists involved in doing some research. And they wrote up reports in which they described the kind of interrogation uh, strategies that had been used by communist interrogators in Korea and China and um, elsewhere. And um, one of the famous articles was by two men called Hinkle and Wolf, and it sort of set the stage. They described the process by which people could be broken by these more aggressive um, interrogation strategies. Now, this work led to some bizarre experiments with flotation tanks and isolation and all sorts of other things. But the point that's important for our purposes is it led to two separate practical changes. The first was we created something called a SEER program. SEER stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. And the idea was that if you're an American airman and you're caught behind enemy lines, whether it be um, the Koreans or somebody else, 
You would have to do four things. First, you would have to survive by eating nuts and berries and whatever we, you could. Then you had to, the, the second letter, E, evade, capture. Then, if you were captured, you had to resist interrogation and other strategies. And then finally, you had to, the final E is you had to work out how to escape. That's what SEER stands for. Some people call it SERE training, but it's the letters S-E-R-E. I want, I want to focus on the R, because the resistance part of it is what counts. American airmen and others were being trained to resist the kind of aggressive interrogation strategies, the exposure to temperature extremes, the stress positions, the loud music, the sleep deprivation, the kind of techniques that had been used by communist interrogators. And the way we sought to train people to do this on SEER training was we exposed them to these very techniques. The idea being that if they had experienced them already, they would be able to resist them at the hands of enemy captives. And I've certainly spoken to many U.S. military personnel who've had that training, and they'll tell you, some will tell you more than others about exactly what it involved. But just to give you a sense, what one person told me is one technique, wrapping people up in a sleeping bag with a cable flex and then sort of physically assaulting them, the very technique that led to the de death of General Mohush in Iraq is a seer technique. Okay, so one outcome was seer training, and the other outcome was this kind of sort of what you might call aggressive or renegade interrogation strategy that the CIA um, describes in its Kubark manual in the early 1960s. Those, the, the Kubark manual and the later manual, the Honduras manual, were obtained by the Baltimore Sun about uh, 15 years ago or so, maybe a little more. Um, and they just, they, you know, the, the Kubark manual in particular has all this body of psychological literature at the end, the, the Hinkle and Wolf report, and then this sort of guide for more aggressive interrogation strategies. Let's fast forward now to 2002. Okay? It's, it's after 9-11, of course. Um, and just to give you a sense of what was going on in the minds of people whose views counted at that time, just let me read you um, how George Tenet, the former director of the CIA, described the feeling in the administration at that time. And you, if you watch 60 Minutes in April this year, you'll have heard these words before, but I think they're worth uh, reading and remembering. He begins by saying, we don't torture people, a point that we can return to in Q&A. Um, but then he goes on to say, now listen to me. Now listen to me. He says it twice. I want you to listen to me. Three times, just to make sure Scott Pelley is really paying attention. The context is, it's post 9-11. I've got reports of nuclear weapons in New York City, apartment buildings that are going to be blown up, planes that are going to fly into airports all over again, plot lines that I don't know, I don't know what's going on inside the United States, and I'm struggling to find out where the next disaster is going to occur. Everybody forgets one central context of what we lived through, the palpable fear that we felt on the basis of the fact that there was so much we did not know. Okay? So there's the background. You know... In case we all forget, forget it, there was fear. And then the second thing is what Admiral uh, Donald Grutter, who's now Dean of Duquesne Law School and was a senior judge advocate general, a, a lawyer um, in the Navy, describes as um, the uh-oh moment. And what was the uh-oh moment? The uh-oh moment was in 2002, early 2002, when there were um, a number of detainees at Guantanamo Bay who'd been picked up in Afghanistan. By the way, picked up as a result of bounties that we offered the Northern Alliance. 
right? So what happened is many people just turned in their enemies for 5,000 bucks. And the, I don't know whether you've ever seen the leaflets we dropped, we airdropped in Afghanistan. They promised wealth beyond your wildest dreams, right? So people just turned in their enemies. And what we happened, what we ended up with in Guantanamo Bay, where as intelligence officials subsequently said and acknowledged, was a group of people, and you, the estimates are anywhere between 75 to 95 percent of whom had no actionable intelligence what, whatsoever, right? The vast majority of whom were not even accused of having raised arms against the United States. And in fact, many were detained solely on the grounds that they were members of alleged terror organizations. And yet, if you had turned up at Newark Airport and admitted your membership of those terrorist organizations, you would have been admitted into the United States. <laughs> right? But the uh-oh moment was we were interrogating these people and we weren't get, getting anything. Uh-oh, what are we going to do? Well, as Kofor uh, you know, Black said, um, the gloves came off. Right? We decided we had to take the gloves off. But where are we going to get these aggressive interrogation strategies from? The Army Field Manual says we have to use rapport building. That's the same approach the FBI uses. Well, some bright spark said we could use the very techniques that we used at SEER and our own that we use at SEER and our own soldiers. After all, if we can use them on our own soldiers, why can't we use them on other deta- on detainees? That was an argument made by some by a senior legal official in the DoD to justify the use of these techniques, and that argument carried a great deal of weight. So we basically reverse-engineered these techniques. Right? We, we decided we would use these techniques on detainees in order to get intelligence from them. Before you get into the human rights discussion, here's the colossal tactical error. These techniques, as practiced by, by communist interrogators, were not designed to obtain actionable intelligence. They were designed to break the will of detainees and get them to do whatever it is their captors wanted them to do. Sign false confessions, right? These techniques are not the way in which you get actionable, reliable intelligence. But in the panic, they were the first things that we grabbed hold of. Now, so that's a major tactical error, by the way, I should say. And, and I, I have to say... I wrote a piece with a colleague in the New York Times in which we hypothesized that this is where it came from. Um, you know, these techniques that were basically reverse engineering the SEER training program. And, you know, I had people who knew deny it to me in my face. Even though, by the way, there was a press briefing, a press briefing in the, from the Department of Defense which acknowledged the influence of SEER. The same time there was that press briefing, people in the DOD were redacting Freedom of Information Act, Freedom of Information Act documents so that the word SEER didn't appear. And yet, on the one hand, half the people were denying it, and on the other hand, it was clearly out there. And finally, Jane Mayer picked it up, and, and you know, this story is now well told um, in her article and in a variety of other documents. So that's where it came from. Where did the psychologists and psychiatrists come in? Well... The idea was you wanted to tailor individual interrogation plans for particular detainees, right? So this is not like, you know, uh, you come to university and, you know, you design your own experience. This is somebody looking after you especially. It's, you know, I, I said people were getting more care and attention, right, than we get under our current medical system. They had people over examining their whole detention experience, quote, unquote, Right? And Major General Jeffrey Miller, who was the camp commander at Guantanamo Bay, said you have to integrate the interrogation into the whole detention experience. 
we have to have these behavioral science consultation teams, BSCT for short, known colloquially, by the way, as biscuits. Right? <laughs> I kid you not. So here, were these, excuse me, so here were these biscuits staffed with psychologists and psychiatrists helping devise individual interrogation plans and then monitoring their implementation. Sometimes they were in the room. I've read army documents which recite the biscuit psychologists standing in the room. And sometimes they were watching through one-way mirrors. But they were there. And they helped. They advised interrogators, sometimes using information from, from detainees' medical records. You should exploit this detainee's fear of the dark, was one example. Um, so the behavioral science consultation teams essentially advised interrogators to use this whole gamut of aggressive interrogation techniques, the sleep deprivation, the loud noises, the isolation, the, inter the, the frequent flyer program. You know what the frequent flyer program is? That's where you keep somebody awake by moving them every two hours to a different room. Right? And you don't collect any points as a result of that. Okay? Um, okay, so this program started in Guantanamo Bay, and then Major General Jeffrey Miller, who ran Guantanamo, took a team to Abu Ghraib in, uh, in August-September of 2003 and said, things are a mess here. We have to do here in Abu Ghraib what we're doing in Guantanamo Bay. And so he instituted the same system there. Now, just to give you a sense of, of how these aggressive interrogations worked, um, at Guantanamo Bay in late 2002 and early 2003, there was uh, a man called uh, Mohammed Al-Qatani, who happened to be labeled the so-called 20th hijacker. At the same time, by the way, we were also detaining Zacharias Musawi, who too was identified as the 20th hijacker. But it doesn't matter if you have more than one 20th hijacker. Because these narrative constructs, these labels actually help. Um, I, I mean, they thought they were helping. As you'll see, I clearly don't think they helped. But what they became was a license to abuse detainees. This man, Akatani, was subject to the first so-called special interrogation plan. He was subjected over a period of 48 days out of a total of 54 days for 18 to 20 hours per day for every one of those 48 days. He was subjected to aggressive interrogation. Um, as a result of this interrogation strategy, his pulse dropped to 35 beats per minute on occasion or two, his body temperature to 95 degrees on a couple of occasions. You know, these are life-threatening. And it wasn't just life-threatening, it was humiliating too. He was given three bags of intravenous fluid, and when he wanted to go to the bathroom, he was told, pee in your pants. And that's exactly what he had to do, and then sit in it. Right? So this was, not, this was humiliating treatment as well as, as, as life-threatening treatment. And then it, it, this happened, too, at, at Abu Ghraib. And, and really, the only reason why public attention was drawn to this was because of those Abu Ghraib photographs. But you know, I'm particularly upset with the press because this was going on long before April 2004, and we knew it long before April 2004. But journalists, apart from one or two cases, journalists weren't reporting this until the photographs made it impossible to ignore. Right? And I could tell you, I mean, there are other narratives of how we how we abuse people at, at Abu Ghraib, but I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take those in, in Q&A. So basically, I just want to finish with seven, my seven myths about torture and interrogation. And then um, I'd uh, be very happy to take questions. Okay, myth number one, ticking bombs. Right? Often used as the justification for aggressive interrogation. At a recent meeting at Georgetown between a group of psychologists and interrogators, they admitted it in their collective 100 years of experience they'd never had a ticking bomb scenario. 
right? But it's the one the legal academics and the philosophers use to justify torture. But in reality, you can make all sorts of things sound like ticking bombs, but really, they're more effective than real. Um, secondly, the second myth is that torture works. Um, we sent to Egypt a man called Al-Libi, who under torture said there was a connection between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. That was used to bolster the, the case for war in Iraq. After we're in there, um, guess what? He retracts his statement. He said it was given under torture. That's just one powerful example, but there are many to demonstrate that torture does not work. And so let's take it down a level, so-called, and that's my third myth. Enhanced interrogation techniques. And the myth is that they're enhanced, because they're not. Right? And I'll give you a couple of examples. We in Britain know very well from all the occasions we've used enhanced interrogation techniques and IRA suspects, so what happens, we end up getting, we don't just get them to confess, we get convictions, and then we end up having them overturned 10 or 15 years later, when it becomes clear that you know, it really wasn't the people that we interrogated aggressively. So enhanced interrogation techniques are great at obtaining confessions, but they're not great at obtaining actionable intelligence. And I already told you about the U.S. airmen in Korea. The fourth myth is that torture light is light. There's no such thing as torture light. Okay, it just doesn't exist. It's a nice little buzzword created in the media. Um, there's a phenomenal report from Physicians for Human Rights called Break Em Down, and it details all the psychological sequelae of, of so-called torture light. Even just putting someone in isolation for a prolonged period has profound psychological sequelae. And somebody here at Penn State, a man by the name of William Ray, has done studies where he sticks people in, in functional magnetic resonance imaging machines. And he shows a change in brain function as a result of people who have been tortured and abused and, and are suffering from dissociative experiences. So there's no such thing as torture light. These things have profound psychological sequelae. But, you know, if we don't look, we don't see. The fifth myth is that experienced interrogators want these techniques. I was at a conference um, last year with a host of people, a number of people who admitted they were army interrogators, other people who said, who, who said they were contractors, which means that they were really con contract interrogators, I guess, for the CIA. And they had a number of different things they said, but it was the army interrogator whose comments were most powerful. He said to me, and I quote, I am fed up with people like the vice president arguing for aggressive interrogation strategies that I do not want and do not need. Right? And then he went on to elaborate. He said, everybody wants to talk. Everybody. You just have to be the person they want to talk to. And that was how he'd established a great reputation um, as an interrogator in the army for, t for over 20 years. Alas, there's a kind of glass ceiling, and these experienced interrogators tend not to reach the higher ranks of the military. But anyway... Um, I cite him just to emphasize that you know, experienced interrogators don't want these, generally don't want these techniques. The other thing I would say is that the chief psychologist of the Naval Criminal Investigation Service, a man called Michael Gellis, has written a book, has written a chapter of a book in which he states quite clearly that even though there may be a temptation to use aggressive interrogation techniques against Al-Qaeda suspects, the most effective approach is rapport building. Okay, fi uh, myth number six, health professionals prevent abuse. Health professionals, I've had this debate, by the way, with the uh, former president of the American Psychological Association. Having health professionals involved does not necessarily prevent abuse, 
particularly if you task those interrogators, as we did with the biscuits, with assisting the intelligence teams. If you make them your bosses, if you say those are the people whose missions you have to be part of, that is not going to protect detainees. Right? And in fact, I have seen army documents which recite the presence of the psychologist in the room when Katani is undergoing his aggressive interrogation. And they were involved in the very design of these aggressive interrogation strategies. If you put good people in bad situations, if you put good people in, you know, in Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay and say, these are the worst of the worst, as we said about the detainees in Guantanamo Bay, they can tell us where the next terror attack is, then they're not going to end up being guardians or protectors of detainees, they're going to end up being brought into the, the military mission, which is what happened. And then seventh and finally, um, the myth of line drawing. I was asked to speak at an event recently, and the topic was torture. Where do you draw the line? Well, unfortunately, you can't draw a line. And there are two ways in which you can't draw a line. The first is that what I could do to a sumo wrestler, right, is not, and really might leave no psychological impact whatsoever, would leave profound psychological impacts on um, somebody who was 90 years old, right? And in between, there's a huge range of subjective factors, which determine how susceptible some or others of us are to abuse. I can tell you something that will be torture for anyone. Ten minutes of waterboarding, that's torture for everyone, right? But you can't say, you can't guarantee that no technique is going to impose psychological trauma because it depends on the person on whom it's practiced. And so that's one way in which you can't draw a line. And the second way in which you can't draw a line is you can't confine torture or aggressive interrogation to the most pressing cases. Because what we saw at Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay was just that, the spreading of these aggressive interrogation techniques so that those who were completely innocent um, and, or had no intelligence value were exposed to them. Once you let the cat out the bag, you know, once you open the Pandora's box, that's it. All right, so those are my seven myths, and I'd be very happy to take some questions. Yes? Yeah. Well, my question is, so what kind of interrogators do you want to, and does this affect the mental or physical health of the person that is using these techniques? Have there been any studies or reflections on that? I have said many times that this is something we, we will have to watch out for, is the psychological sequelae for those for not just the interrogators, but for the military police and the psychologists and the psychiatrists who advised, I think we will see psychological consequences. And nobody has done the work on, and it's too early to do that work. But I, I, I guarantee you there will be some, and we will see them in due course. Um, who are the interrogators that want to use the aggressive techniques? So I think what's interesting is that the two, the two or three core psychologists who had a role in devising these aggressive interrogation techniques were not people who really had experience in the field. Right? There were a couple of people at some outfit on the West Coast, and what's interesting is, you know, they, com- they shut up shop the day before the aggressive interrogation of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed began at a CIA black site, the one described by Bar- Mark Bowden in his Atlantic article, The Dark Art of Interrogation. So and some of the people who were advising on this were not people who had great experience. And some of the people we brought into the interrogation scenario, particularly some of the contractors, proved to be profoundly problematic. What didn't help, by the way was the culture, the competitive culture, interagency culture um, at Guantanamo Bay and elsewhere. So just to give you a sense, DOD interrogators, um, some of them who started practicing these aggressive interrogation techniques because that was a mandate from on high, passed themselves off as FBI interrogators. 
and I can tell you the FBI was mightily upset about this. And it wrote reports, and members of the FBI wrote reports and letters and um, all the rest of it, uh, saying, you know, you have to stay away from DOD interrogators who are practicing aggressive techniques, and you have to do your best to stop, put an end to DOD interrogators passing themselves off as us. So that was one kind of tension. But the other kind of tension was competitive tension. Instead of helping each other, they wanted to be, they wanted to be the ones that got that nugget of intelligence. Instead of working together. I've spoken to an army interrogator who said, I got more from the British intelligence operatives than I got from the CIA. Because the CIA interrogators were so uncooperative. So all those things didn't help. Well, that's a, a really great question. Um, two responses to that. The Stanford Prison Study, conducted several years ago by um, uh, uh, a number of people, one of whom I've, I've since made contact with on the, <laughs> Craig Haney is his name, on the sort of interrogation circuit, conducted this experiment in which they screened students for all kind of psychological issues. They picked people that were as stable as they could possibly find, and they divided them into two, the prisoners and the, and the prison officers. And, and they had to call the experiment off because it just got so abusive. So here were people screened especially not to have psychological problems. And when you put, them, when you put people in a really terrible situation, they don't tend to behave well. So you don't have to have people who are aggressive or predisposed to aggression for things to go wrong. That's the first thing. What is true, however, is that some people who were involved nonetheless had aggressive histories in the criminal justice system, right? Who worked in prisons in the penal system. So there are some people who did have um, unfortunate histories. But I can't tell you whether they were necessarily picked for that reason. So what I would say is that even with good people, you put them in a bad situation, um, it's, it's what Robert J. Lifton describes as an atrocity-producing situation, which he first used in terms of Nazi Germany. But you don't actually need bad people. If you just create an awful situation, you stick people on this remote part of a Cuban island and you tell them they have the worst of the worst and the gloves are coming off, you know, certain things happen. One way in which we have tried to screen, by the way, is, is, is in this following sense. Um, force feeding of detainees. In the US, in U.S. prisons, we don't force feed people, right, until their health is really implicated. Okay, if somebody goes on a hunger strike, we let them get pretty far along before force feeding even becomes an option. What we've been doing at Guantanamo Bay is force feeding people within 72 hours. Right? Now, if you're on fluids and you don't eat and you're a healthy 25-year-old, your, your life is not implicated after 72 hours of fasting. Right? I mean, leaving aside questions of diabetics and, and others. But what's happened is that we've been, doing, we've been force feeding people. Now, leave aside the allegations that we used especially brutal feeding, you know, especially thick feeding tubes when smaller tubes should have been used. Leave aside those allegations because I can neither substantiate nor disprove. Right? But what's clear is that we were force-feeding people before their health required it. Now, the argument that um, Winkenwerder, who's the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, used is, you know, we're, 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 sa we're protecting people. We're, sa we're saving their lives. Right? But was it really necessary to do what they had been doing, which is to strap them into a chair for post-feed observation and force them to sit in their own urine and feces? Now, the reason why I mention that is because a number of physicians objected to participating in 
force feeding of detainees, number of Navy physicians in particular. And what happens was the, the approach to DOD took was it started to ask people before sending them to Guantanamo Bay, do you have a, an ideological objection to force feeding detainees? And if the answer was yes, you didn't get sent. So, so the answer is good people do bad things in bad situations. You don't have to screen for bad people. But the other thing is in one or two ways, we have looked for those who have not had objections to some of the practices. Um, this gentleman here, and then the man in the shirt. Two comments yeah. and, a, and a question. <coughs> One is that uh, our lowest level non-commissioned officers in, in the war zone are, first of all, they have rules of engagement, which are pretty, pretty strict. Uh, second of all, they uh, do interrogate people to find out whether they should be sent back. Uh, so I think they are learning by building rapport. Mm-hmm. get more information out of the civilian population by providing security and other things. That's one, one statement. And the other is uh, that military people are supposed to, as a matter of honor, uh, disobey illegal orders. So the Navy physicians might fit into that if they thought it was illegal or improper. Not, not just as a matter of honor. I mean, they're, if, they, if they obey a manifestly unlawful order, they're going to find themselves... They may well find themselves prosecuted for obeying they a manifesting on lawful order. Yeah. I don't know how often that enters into it. Yeah. Uh, second, uh, the, the question is, what particular training do the did the Afghanistan detainees uh, have in resistance to interrogation? Anything cultural or? Okay, so the thing about the people who were picked up in Afghanistan, as I say, is that many of them were just unfortunate people in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and I don't know that any, I don't know that even Taliban had that kind of training. There is something called the Manchester Manual, so called because it was picked up in a raid on a house in Manchester, and it is an Al Qaeda training manual, and it does talk a little bit about resistance and about um, making false allegations of torture as a way of frustrating your captors and all the rest of it. But the bottom line is it doesn't matter whether you put them through SEER training or whether you put them through Al-Qaeda training. The bottom line is nobody, nobody can resist being tortured in the following sense. That whatever is done to you, you will start spilling beans. Now, how much of it is true, how much of it is false, how much of it is a concoction or a combination of the true, nobody can say. But the bottom line is is we, we will all talk, okay? But that using torture and aggressive interrogation to make people talk is not a good way of really capturing those tidbits of intelligence that you're looking for in the first place. That's where the rapport building is much more useful. You know, and there are things like, you know, so if I had you, if I was an interrogator, and I'm not an experienced interrogator, but from what I know, if I had you in my custody, you know, I'd say, it's a real pleasure to meet you. My name is, and I'd tell you who I was, and I'd say, we've been after you for a really long time. Every time we pick up somebody, you know, we, after hours of torture, they finally tell us that it's you and, we're, you know, and all roads lead to you. And you are clearly the linchpin of this network. It couldn't have existed without you. We, we admire that you've been able to really pull off. You know, that's, that's the way you do it. Would you like a Coke? <laughs> yes, this gentleman here. I'm not sure actually um, what 
actually end up happening with them, but uh, my first and foremost, I'd like to know about the people that have come out of custody there and what their testimony has been about what's gone on there. Um, and then the second question is, is at what level in the government and leadership do you think that these policies are being implemented? Because it seems that if it's so clear that they're so ill-advised, um, and like you're saying, there's a glass ceiling so the people with the experience uh, can't actually dictate the policy. Um, is it, is it, does it extend all the way to the president, or is the, the Rumsfeld, or like at what point, where is, is a major error happening? Okay, first, um, let me talk about the three, the three Brits, the so-called Tipton Three, who ended up, I mean, I was at the first event at which they spoke publicly about their experiences. There's been a BBC documentary about the Tipton Three. Um, and, you know, I can't tell you for certain what comes out of their mouths is, that, that everything that comes out of their mouths is absolute bona fides. I have no idea. But what they do make is they come across as three kind of, you know, we have this phrase in Britain, likely lads, you know, three Yorkshire lads. You know, they're, they're Muslim, right? Which is why they were detained in the first place. Um, and they don't come across necessarily as very smart, but what they do say is, you know, we, they just kept asking us the same silly questions over and over and over again. I mean, they weren't actually very impressed with their interrogators. Apart from being somewhat traumatized by the whole experience, they didn't feel as though they had really been at the receiving end of some great intellect. Now, actually, maybe that's also a sign of a good interrogator, is because if I want to interrogate you, as I was doing before, I want to make you think you're smarter than me. Because the moment that you think I'm smarter than you, you're on your guard. So, but, they, but their argument was, you know, we just got asked loads of really crazy questions. Um, now, there's a volume which has just been published um, by the Committee Against Torture in Israel. And they have first-person testimonies of torture victims. Some, I think, are Israeli, and some, I think, are Guantanamo Bay. So, and I can, you know, if you send me an email to marks at psu.edu, I can send you the link. So what we're getting is we're getting a number of testimonies, usually in the form of witness statements or affidavits for court, um, and sometimes in the form of kind of little oral histories, as it were. But we're beginning to get more and more of these statements of the abuse and of the impact of abuse. And I have to say one of the most powerful things that I ever did was... Um, I chaired a panel on torture in Congress, and then towards the end of it, I said, just out of curiosity, how many people in this room have been tortured? And, you know, six people stood up. And I said, okay, basically, I silenced my fellow panelists, and I said, I want to hear from you. And there's nothing more powerful than hearing from people who have been subject to torture or cruel or degrading or inhuman treatment. So that's the answer to your first question. The second question about the levels of leadership. Well, what we know is, you know, we have, doc we, I mean, we, there's a memo that Donald Rumsfeld signed about stress positions, and he says, literally, in his handwriting at the bottom of the document, it says, why do they only have to stand for four hours? I have to stand for eight to ten hours a day. Right? Now, now, so, you know, now there's also some effort to distance, too. So, for example, the... The uh, president just issued an executive order governing CIA interrogation and detention procedures in July of this year. And what he basically says is, it's up to the director of the CIA. To, I mean, he said certain things are put off limits, waterboarding because of the, you know, amongst other things, because of the attention that that's got. But then he says, you know, it's up to the director of the CIA to determine which techniques are going to be safe 
for each individual detainee. So um, there's some reason, you know, so there's some effort to distance. But what we do know is, uh, and I think, you know, the story is still being told at various levels, is that it goes very high up the chain of command. And it's not always necessary for the person right at the top of any institutional structure to give a written mandate. Right? I mean, the CIA interrogation executive order is a kind of written mandate. It is a written mandate. But it's not even necessary to give written mandates, as anybody who knows about power structures will tell you. If the person right at the very top gives a very clear oral mandate to the most immediate people around him or her, then those people can be the ones who produce the documents that say, this is where we go next. So I'm not going to tell you who is and who is not indictable for war crimes, crimes against humanity, but let's just say that I think there are many people in the administration who should not be resting easy. I mean, they may be resting easy while they're still in office, but as the Pinochet case tells us, once you leave office, um, you are particularly susceptible to prosecution. Yes? Um, a related question, you said you wouldn't uh, get into the area of who could be charged. Um, there was a recent report, and perhaps you could confirm this because it was very surprising, that um, an international body in Belgium that was considering the Bosnian genocide uh, area uh, had recently cleared Serbia of war crimes. And that was surprising because the pretext for American and then NATO involvement was that Serbia was committing genocide in the Balkans, and that this was the reason for the intervention. In the trials that started and were abruptly ended when the Yugoslavian president died uh, suddenly, Milosevic contended that his only crime was due to the war, that if he was guilty of war crimes, then Clinton, Albright, uh, the NATO leader should also be guilty of war crimes. That was sort of the same argument used by Goering in, uh, in <coughs> Nuremberg. Goering said the only reason we Nazis are here is we lost the war. And he was curiously supported by Senator Taft, the mm. American conservative Republican, who said you can't just make up these rules as you go along. So my, my question, since you won't say whether American leaders could be indicted. Well, well I think they could be indicted. Whether, whether it led to a successful prosecution is a different that's my question. question. Yeah. Is the case often of politics trumping the law, whatever the law, yeah. whatever the norm may be? In other words, as long as a nation wins, for instance, Truman was mm. charged with war crimes, so he uh, perhaps may have committed some of the worst uh, military acts of the war. Isn't it often a question of who wins? Well, not what the law is? So first of all, so I wrote an article about this, and I... Um, I began with a quotation from Solon, who said, you know, about a part of 2,000 years ago, or maybe more, um, you know, the law is like a spider's web. The, you know, it catches the small people, but the big ones break through and make off. Goering said, actually, before his arrest, you know, we will be either celebrated or prosecuted. He knew that in advance. He didn't have to wait for Nuremberg. And what's true is that we never prosecuted anybody um, at Nuremberg for aerial bombing civilian targets. How could we? We killed 153,000 people in one night at Dresden, right? Sure. So that's, that's true. Um, politics are, cer I mean, it's very difficult to separate politics and law. I wrote an article in which I set out an entire framework for the international prosecution of former 
um, heads of state and other officials for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And it was a, an effort at imposing principle. Um, so far, this United Nations Security Council has yet to adopt my recommendation. But yes, I mean, the reality is politics come into it. So for example, Belgium had a very broad universal jurisdiction law. There are certain crimes like war crimes, torture, crimes against humanity that are considered to be um, serious international crimes. So serious that the perpetrator is hostis humanis generis, which means enemy of all mankind. Every state has an interest in prosecuting that person. right? And so Belgium had these very broad universal jurisdiction laws and the US said we're not going to fund the new NATO building in Belgium unless you... So yes, politics and law do have... But, but what I will say is that you know, there are a number of cases when you know, justice at least comes close to being done. And Pinochet is a good example of that. Now, whatever the political climate is now, and to whatever purpose that serves to protect those who are in office now or recently were in office, they have to get through the rest of their lives for crimes, without which there's, for crimes where there's no statute of limitations, really. So... You know, they can't sleep that easy. And Henry Kissinger, to this day, gets legal advice before getting on a plane to another country. And I think there'll be a few people in the current administration who will have to do the same. Yes. And then, yeah. things that is comparing the reactions of both interrogators and those interrogated from different broad cultural milieu, uh, westernized folks, uh, people in the Islamic world or the parts of the Islamic world and national socialists and so on? So studies of differences in interrogation tactics and, and in the behaviors of people during... Well, I have, I have uh, I've read attempts, and they're really just attempts, to try and make those kind of generalizations, like this popular, you know, so in this culture, concepts of shame are more prevalent than concepts of guilt, or in that culture, something, you know, but it's very difficult to make broad sweeping statements, because while it is true that um, there are, you know, you, you can discern trends, it's very difficult to come up with some psychological template, and in fact, um, I was a kind of observer and minimal participant in the session a workshop that was conducted at Penn State in the psychology of terrorism. And most of the other people in the room were psychologists. And I said to them, you know, if you do anything in this workshop, my sense is that you as psychologists should try and debunk the myth that um, there's such a, a thing as this, the terrorist mind, right? And in just the same way as there isn't a terrorist mind, you, can, you, know, you may be able to identify overarching themes or trends or all the rest of it. But whenever I've read a document which seeks to do exactly what you describe, it always looks to me somewhat amateurish. Um, is there any discussion among ethicists about the uh, usefulness of trying to set limits or uh, define uh, better rules for interrogation slash torture in a war setting? In other words, war as a form of psychological and physical torture in and of itself that, that naturally leads to to torture and interrogation, and whether it's possible to separate those <coughs> those two roads, it seems that when you go down one, perhaps you're going to go to the other quite naturally. Well, first of all, the whole point of the laws of war, and you know, when I try and explain the laws of war to anybody, they look at you absurdly. So it's all right 
to blow someone's legs off with a shell, but it's not all right to expose them to psychological torture, right? So, and, and you know, having your legs blown off by a shell can result in psychological trauma for the rest of your life. So, how do you, so once, I mean, once you probe the laws of war in that way, it becomes problematic. But what's clear is that if you don't have boundaries, right, war is a terrible thing. Some people think the best way to end all wars is you have no boundaries. So all wars are so horrible that nobody would ever want to do them. And that it's an argument I just heard last week. And because we place boundaries on what's permissible in war, we make it more palatable so we can you know, go to war more often. I don't know whether that hypothesis is true or not, but that's certainly a view. So there are legal constraints which are designed to basically separate some behaviors as from the conduct of war as being simply beyond the pale. And then beyond the work that the law does, there are ethical constraints, right? Um, and some of them are military ethics, and some of them, for example, in the case of health professionals, are medical ethics. And there have been a number of attempts to do just this. The World Medical Association's regulations in time of armed conflict stated in the relevant draft at the time we uh, opened Guantanamo Bay for customers, um, stated very clearly that um, weakening the mental or physical health of a, of a person was unethical for a physician. Now, how you could read that and participate in aggressive interrogations, I don't know. What's happened since is that the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association have both come out very firmly saying none of our people should be involved in, directly involved in interrogations at all, full stop. Whether it's Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, or a federal prison up the road, Right? They're not there to assist the interrogation mission. Forget it. You might be able to give general advice and training on what kind of things could, put a physical, could create a physical or mental health risk for somebody, but you can't get involved in an individual um, interrogation. The American Psychological Association's position is much more vexed because a lot of people, because the, the leadership of the institution historically has had links with intelligence agencies, and that's made it much more charitably disposed, I think. Um, and in fact, they first produced a report in 2000, summer 2005 where they couldn't even say that psychologists should abide by international human rights law. They couldn't achieve consensus in that. One of the reasons why they couldn't is because so many people in the task force were currently involved in the advising the administration on the conflict or had done so recently. And then in 2006, they came out with a further resolution which said no torture, no cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment. But other than that, you know, psychologists could be involved. And um, most recently, in summer of 2007, they came up with a further resolution. They said the following techniques are definitely prohibited. And this isn't meant to be all they're prohibited. These techniques are definitely prohibited. And then they said, as for isolation, sleep deprivation, um, uh, uh, that sort of stuff, well, as long as no reasonable person would consider that this would cause long-term harm or something to that effect. So in other words, the latest stance of the American Psychological Association still seems to be that prolonged isolation um, and those kind of techniques can be used as instruments of distress in interrogations, and that psychologists can, be partic can participate in this. So the American Psychological Association position, although improving very slightly incrementally each time, is, is still, in my view, somewhat problematic. And the debate amongst us, eth we ethicists, sort of continues. Um, I think there were two of you were both... Um, there's a wonderful woman called Tara McKelvey who you may have seen on the um, she does book reviews in 
uh, the New York Times uh, book review section, and she has a book out uh, which talks about the role. It's it's a collection of essays um, which speak about the role of women. Um, as you would expect, the number of female perpetrators is not as great as the number of male perpetrators, but, you know, I'm afraid to say there are still women who have been complicit in these aggressive interrogations. And again, if you email me, I'll send you the actual title of of the book that she's edited. Um, I think the person beside you had your hand up next. Yes, um, just a a question about whether you feel, or or whether there's any documentation to support, so we can follow up with this gentleman's question up here, whether or not Western perceptions, um, whether based on reality or not, of uh, maybe historical uh, torture techniques that have been used in the Middle East, or even more generally, Western perceptions of reactions of Middle Easterners to different um, fact-finding techniques may have influenced the initial decision to embrace uh, torture. Um, I think the the initial decision... Uh, sorry, that was... Um, maybe this is all availed. Was there any way to Well, that's certainly an argument that was made, for example, about the failure to intervene in Rwanda, but the intervention in Kosovo was it the color of the people who, you know, and I, and there's you know something powerful about that argument. What what I will say is that um, certainly culture and cultural perceptions have a lot to do with it. But here's one of the most dramatic impacts. Um, I wrote in a paper, which is just about to come out, I wrote about the influence of our media, right? Those incredibly irritating, fascinating, everything is, you know, fact is fictionalized, reality is entertainment, right? And in that world, um, where critique is suspended, I argue we've fostered a culture that was basically tolerant of torture. And I give a couple of examples of that, one of which is 24, and it's not just me who says this. I'm not the only one. The head of West Point, the military academy at West Point, went to see the, the creators of 24 because he said, your program is having, quote, a toxic effect. It's, uh, I have the exact words in my paper here, but I'll just paraphrase off the top of my head. You know, we're creating a torture-tolerant culture, and more, moreover, we're making it difficult to train interrogators and making it more difficult for them to re- behave responsibly in interrogation scenarios because they think, having seen Jack Bauer that that's the way to get information from people, and that that's a patriotic thing to do. So that certainly has been very powerful. Um, I've read an article recently in the New York Times that says, as long as our country is involved in torture, that we're all complicit. Would you comment on that? Well, it's, it's really fascinating, because this notion of complicity is one which has vexed philosophers for a very long time. Um, so am I as a United States permanent resident but not a voter here? Am I complicit too? I mean, it's a good question. But what I would say is that I think if we know these things are going on, we have at the very least a moral and ethical obligation to speak out about them, to voice our concerns, to say, no, we don't, we don't support this. Um, and that certainly, I mean, I do believe that you know, people who make movies that glamorize this are, are truly complicit. And that, yes, sometimes by our silence, it's possible that we too could be complicit. I don't want to go into a broad debate about complicity, but whether or not we are complicit in a sense that satisfies the demands of philosophical rigor, what I would say is that we are considered to be complicit. By the, by the people, by the way, 
who are determined to do as ill, and by the way, we haven't done very much. I think we've been fortunate more than anything else that we haven't had another attack. Um, but by the very people who do think ill of us, they perceive us as complicit. That is for sure. So I would urge you all to, <laughs> you know, to make you know, to, to make that view that we're complicit much more difficult to sustain. To really voice your concerns, you know, to take opportunities to write to your papers, to you know, to be active in the community about these things. Yes. With your experience, how would you generally rate uh, the world's conventions on torture? Do you think that they are in good shape in terms of um, legalistic matters and the problem is enforcement, or is there still a need to work on the wording of things? For instance, you mentioned the media seem to be out of control in many areas. Is there a necessity for media guidelines and this increasing information? Well, I certainly think, as, as far as the laws of war themselves are concerned, that what people have been doing is trying to make little dances around them. And what perhaps we could do is we could make clear, what I, which is already clear to international lawyers, but the administration tried to avoid, was that whoever you are, there are very basic protections enshrined in the Geneva Conventions, so-called Common Article 3, the very basic prohibitions on torture, humiliating, degrading treatment, cruel treatment, that sort of stuff. And these apply across the board. Um, and, you know, the... The, the Supreme Court eventually came out in Hamdan and Rumsfeld last year and said, and there's no doubt these apply to um, all these detainees. Um, anything we can do to re-emphasize that would be great. The one area I can think of where we might need to do a little work is what about the, such things as using um, uh, some psychotropic drugs or uh, I think it's tolerably clear in relation to those that what's definitely uh, needs to be spelled out is what about things like using fMRI for interrogation purposes, brain imaging, and I have written an article in which I discuss that, and there's some suggestion it's happening already. Those kind of things really aren't addressed because um, it's new technology by international norms. So that's something we need to work on. And as for the media, that's a whole different story, which I don't think I have time to address now, but I'd be happy to talk to you about it. <laughs>